Would you guys give a warm welcome to uh, AJ Swoboda? Good morning. Oh, my goodness. Look at these. Man, that was an impressive introduction. I really am a remarkable human being, apparently. Um, probably maybe one thing that was left out. I really love Jesus a lot. And I'm really uh, thankful to God to be able to share it in the communion of the saints this morning. Could I ask you, would you get your Bibles out? Um, we're going to find our way to Acts chapter 2. We're going to take some time today, and uh, we're going to talk about, yeah, the, we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. And um, I want to give a few, I don't know, I think this is appropriate, a few trigger warnings. Um, uh, you, you made, uh, Pastor Ryan made a, a comment that um, having an outside voice uh, can often provide an opportunity for uh, a prophetic, maybe outside voice. Um, what he's really saying is, I'm going to say some things, and then he's going to take me directly to the airport, um, <laughs> and, and I will be gone. I'm, I'm not saying that to say that I'm going to say things today that are going to uh, push you away from Jesus, but I am going to ask you today, I'm going to ask you to be open in your heart to seeing a side of God that might be fresh to you. It is not a new God. It is just a new aspect of God's power in your life. So th that is a, a, a trigger warning. If, if what we talk about today um, challenges you, then I've done a good job. Okay? Don't, 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 be, don't be off put by that. I invite you. I invite you to uh, the, 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 the conversation today. God, as, as I share... Uh, anything that you want me to say while we're together, would you nudge me to do so? And anything that you don't want me to say, would you just kind of quiet me and keep me from saying things that you don't want? Would you today open the ears of our hearts and our minds so that we would hear your voice and follow your spirit? Thank you, Jesus, for sending the Holy Spirit. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. In the name of Jesus. Would you say amen? Amen. amen. In 1962, uh, there was an Anglican theologian by the name of Roland Allen who wrote a little tiny book called The Missionary Methods. Uh, it was, a, uh, at the time, kind of a, 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 a groundbreaking book because this guy was a missionary who had spent countless years uh, serving the gospel uh, in non-Western uh, uh, context. And upon sort of returning from years of missionary work, he wrote a book about what he noticed about, in his time of being a missionary, what he noticed about how Paul in the New Testament did uh, the work of mission. And one of the things he noticed uh, when he paid attention to the book of Acts and the story of Paul is that Paul was a really, really, really bad pastor. And what he meant by that is... <laughs> that whenever Paul would go to a city, did you, have you noticed this in the Bible? Whenever Paul would go to a city and start a church, he'd like leave in just a couple weeks. <laughs> have you ever noticed this little, he'd show up, he'd start a church, people would start worshiping, and then he would be like, see you later. <laughs> and Roland Allen makes this point that, that you, you wouldn't really want Paul as a pastor. Um, he's not really present, uh, usually when you hear from him, it's a letter. And, and, and when you do hear from him, some of his letters are pretty, pretty tough, right? But he was a brilliant missionary. And Alan argues there is one reason, one reason that his missionary method was so powerful. And Alan argues this. Alan argues that the, the gospel spread through Paul 
Because Paul understood that his role was to get out of the way. In fact, he, he makes a case that had Paul stayed too long, people would have trusted more in him than the Holy Spirit. That's a weird way to think about your life. But what if it's true that the goal of the Christian life is to get out of the way? Today, I want to explore what it would look like to actually see the Holy Spirit in the center of our existence. What would it look like for us to operate in such a way that we know how to get out of the way and create space for God to do what God desires? There was a theologian years ago who argued that when you look at the history of the church, we have usually done a fabulous job talking about Jesus. We've done a fabulous job about the we have not been super stellar at talking about the Holy Spirit. And there was a theologian named Arthur Hurd who once argued that the Holy Spirit is the Cinderella of the Trinity, that the other two get to go off to the ball and she's left cleaning the floor. And I want to suggest to you today that if the Holy Spirit is God as we believe, then he deserves our full attention. Are you with me? Are you with me? Okay. Acts chapter 2. Um, I want to read to you um, what, uh, an, an account uh, that is simply called the Pentecost story. Okay? And the Pentecost story uh, in Acts chapter 2 is, in, in, the, in the way that Luke is telling his story of the early church, is really the central moment. It's, it's, the, uh, it's the heart of the story of what the Holy, who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit does, wants, desires to do in our midst. Of course, the backstory is this. Jesus had told his disciples I'm going to go to heaven, and in, 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 my, in my departure, in my departure, I will send to you this spirit. And, and Jesus makes a comment. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. By the way, I had a foster daughter for a, a nine-month period. For the folks in the room who are serving foster kids today, God is with you. When you have a foster child in your home, there is, they, call, they, they call it, um, uh, I've heard a couple counselors uh, call it orphan syndrome, which is when you have been a foster child or an orphan, is that you constantly live your life wondering if you are going to be left behind. When Jesus tells the disciples, I am not abandoning you, I'm sending the Spirit to you, he is conquering the orphan syndrome in humanity. God will not leave you. He is present to you. He is with you. Yes, Jesus has departed, but the Spirit has now come. Acts chapter 2. I'm going to read it uh, up on the screen if that's possible. I didn't bring my physical because I, I knew we, we, we'd have it up here. So let's read this together. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Verse 2. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Verse 4. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit 
and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, it's very cold there, <laughs> Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome. By the way, this little comment right here, you see that little line that says visitors from Rome? We have no knowledge as to who started the church in Rome. Paul did not start it. In fact, by the time he wrote Romans, he had never been there. In fact, he references 38 people in Romans 16. He'd never been there. Talk about knowing people's names. Visitors from Rome, our best guess is that someone was there who heard the gospel and took the gospel home with them. Both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. I'm going to come back to that. Underline that, that phrase, Cretans and Arabs. That's super important for the author here. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in their own tongues. Amazed and perplexed. Second, word, second time the word amazed is used. Amazed and perplexed. They asked one another, what does this mean? Verse 13. <laughs> Somehow we made fun of them and said, these guys are wasted. Um. And by the way, uh, this is hilarious. You know what time of day this story takes place? What time of day is this? At nine in the morning. So there are apparently people shocked that somebody could be drunk at nine in the morning, having clearly never been to Eugene, Oregon. Um, <laughs> and of course, the... The way Luke tells us is immediately after this story, how many people get saved? 3,000 people. Immediately upon this story taking place, 3,000 people believe in Jesus. And by the way, just to give you a sense of the numbers here, the way that the biblical authors usually do numbers like this is they usually only count the men, not the women and the children. So to give you a context, um, it's probably more like nine or 10,000 people. But there are 3,000 counted people after this story who uh, submit their life to Jesus and will, from this point forward, uh, go through the Roman Empire and, and transform the Roman Empire. And by the way, after this story, just to give you some numbers, again, um, there's a, a historian named uh, Stuart Allen who wrote a book called uh, on post-Christianity, and he does a historical analysis of how quickly the church grew. And it is estimated, catch this, that in the year 100, just a few years after this, in the year 100, there were about 30,000 Christians. By the year 300 there were 30 million Christians. Now, that's some pretty good church growth. I'd take a little bit of that. That is incredible. Three-fourths of the early church was composed of women and slaves because the gospel of Jesus gave value and meaning to people who in the ancient world did not have any. The earliest Christians were the only ones that would go into the cities when the plagues hit. They would go and care. In fact, Christians developed the first orphanages, the first hospitals. 
There was a practice in ancient Rome called exposure, that when little babies were born that people didn't want, the Romans would take their children out into the wilderness and essentially be left for dead. The earliest Christians are the first known people in history who saw their role as being to save the exposed children. This thing, whatever it was, ultimately brought the Roman Empire down. It is the most powerful movement in human history. It has changed more people than anything else. And today, I want to ask, how do we get into this? Okay. I want you to see four things from this story. Um, and, and as we kind of wrestle with this, I'm going I'm to do, do my best to, to, to be not only clear, but on, on time here, because there's a lot I want to say. But, but I want to share four key features of this, this event, this event of the Holy Spirit falling on the church. The, the first thing I want you to see is this, is I want you to see that this story that we just read, Pentecost, is actually, number one, this is a, this is a reversal. This is a reversal. So, so number one, this story is a reversal. What do I mean by that? Let's zoom out just a little bit. Uh, this, uh, this story is written by a, a doctor, uh, Luke. Um, was uh, a physician. We don't know a whole lot about Luke. There's a few details. We know he was a Gentile. Uh, we know he was a doctor. That's really interesting because Luke, as a doctor, actually tells more stories about healings than any other of the gospel writers. And so I, I've often wondered if Luke almost at first saw Jesus as a threat to his business. <laughs> he's, like, he's like, oh, 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 I guess another doctor's in the room, you know? But he, he is keenly interested in seeing the, the work of the healing ministry of Jesus because he's a doctor. He's a Gentile. That's fascinating. Luke writes more of the New Testament than anybody else. And he was a Gentile. Now, historically, that's important because that's evidence that the earliest Christian community immediately broke down the barrier between Jews and Gentiles. That a bunch of Jewish disciples are reading from a Gentile about the Jewish Messiah is incredible. We know he was a doctor, and we know he was a Gentile. And he writes two books. He writes the book of Luke and the book of Acts. And both accounts together, both accounts tell this comprehensive story. Can you still see me okay? Yes. Okay, okay. Often people turn the lights off when they want the sermon to be done quicker, <laughs> but I, I, I want to confirm that that's not a little microaggression and I'm... I'll keep going, and, and may there be light soon. We'll see what, we'll see what happens. But. This is a doctor. And by the way, I should tell you, my dad's a doctor. Uh, my dad uh, spent 40 years as a medical uh, a physician. I'm a doctor. I have a PhD, although a very different kind. Um, if you're going to have a child, you don't want me in the room. Um, if you want to talk the Trinity, you're in good hands. But there's, there's boundaries between what I do and what my dad does. When you're a doctor, I've noticed this about doctors, is that doctors see things that nobody else sees. They have a keen interest in details, largely because details can help you diagnose stuff. You pay attention to the little things. And when you read this story and you see that a doctor has written this, all of a sudden you start seeing, oh my goodness gracious, the guy who's telling this story is not telling a story by himself. He is actually, he's not telling a story that's isolated. He is looking at the story the way a doctor would look at a story. And that is to say that when Luke tells the story of Pentecost, he is not telling, catch this, he is not telling the first Pentecost story in the Bible. 
And you go, what do you mean, not first Pentecost? Because when you read Acts 2, Pentecost is the story of the Holy Spirit coming on the church. And you would assume he's like creating Pentecost. He's like telling the first Pentecost. But in reality, friends, any of the Bible nerds in the room are gonna gonna know this. This is actually not the first Pentecost in the Bible. In fact, when you go back, let's do a little history. Let's Let's just do a little history here. Just a little history. Okay, let's go back. You will recall back in the book of Exodus this story of God coming to Israel and, and seeing their plight. Now, by the way, the very first chapter in Exodus is got one of the coolest details in all of biblical literature. We're told in Exodus chapter, chapter one that Israel was enslaved in Egypt. Now, that's, that's weird because they had just... They had been there for 400 years. But if you go back to the end of Genesis, Egypt was actually, at its beginning, a place of hospitality. And that is to say, Joseph and his brothers had gone there actually to save their lives. There's, and by the time you come to Exodus 1, it has become a, slave, a, place, a place of enslavement. I, I often like to point out, that's actually the way uh, of the world, is that what is first a place of hospitality very quickly becomes a place of enslavement. That you need to be very careful to not just accept all hospitality. (laughs) Because Egypt may be hospitable at first, but before long you're going to be enslaved for 400 years. So be cautious uh, of just (laughs) being welcomed into everything. But by the time we come to Exodus 1, they have been enslaved. And, And the way Exodus 1 begins is that there was somebody called the Pharaoh who had enslaved them. Now, the, the word Pharaoh is actually not a personal name. It's a title. Uh, it's a title. In fact, there were many Pharaohs, many, many Pharaohs. He was just one of the Pharaohs. And he has enslaved uh, Egypt largely because he's, he's insecure and he sees that the Jews have, have the ability to have a lot more kids than the Egyptians do. And so he, he enslaves them. But here's what's interesting. Pharaoh is never named. Only his title is given. It's only a title. It's not a personal name. There was nobody in ancient history called Pharaoh. That was a title. There were many Pharaohs. But in Exodus chapter 1, there are two people who are named. Shipra and Pua. Which are the two midwives, Egyptian midwives, that were saving babies from being killed by Egypt. They are named. And there's, this is, we call this biblical trash talk. The Bible does not name Pharaoh, but names Egyptian midwives as a way of saying the true heroes in the story are not the, ty- they're not the Pharaohs. They're the nobodies who did the quiet work of justice. So the whole story begins with, with, God, with God seeing the plight of Egypt, of Israel. And so what does God do? He raises up a guy named Moshe. Uh, it means to draw out. Uh, it's, it's in reference to this baby that was put in this river, and he was drawn out of the River Nile. Moshe, Moses, you know him as Moses. And Moses was brought out of the River Nile, and he was given the task by God to go and confront Pharaoh. Uh, one of my favorite moments in the entire uh, storyline of the Bible is one of the times God comes to Moses and says, I want you to do this. Uh, Moses says, I can't do it. I stutter. I'm not good. And the line, I love that the Bible tells us what God is thinking. It says that God wanted to kill Moses. <laughs> I just love that line because I love that the Bible tells us God's like inner dialogue, yeah. right? And I also love that God didn't do it. 
He's like, I want to kill you, but you're lucky. I'm not going to do it. I feel like that's most of my relationship with the Lord. It's like, I, I feel like killing you today, but I love you. So uh, keep going. <laughs> so he, but this God raises Moses and he says, I want you to go to Pharaoh and I want you to conf- confront Pharaoh. And so God, con- God through Moses confronts Pharaoh and we have these plagues. You remember the plagues? And you go through these plagues. Uh, there's 10 of them. The 10th one is it, finally, you know, Moses goes, confronts him, and, and, and Pharaoh doesn't listen, or he does for a moment, and then he repents or relents, he doesn't listen. And then finally God says, I want my people to go free. And here's the last plague. The last plague is this. If Egypt does not let my people go, the death of the firstborn will take place. And God says, what, what will happen is you are going to go free, and all of Egypt will lose their firstborn. You hear that? By the way, I got to tell you, whenever I do a lecture on, on that, the Passover event, there are people in the room that would say, like, I can't handle the idea that God would do that. But you need to understand that this grieved God greatly. In fact, when you go, if you've ever been to a Passover meal, there's a moment in the Passover meal when you celebrate the Passover where you take your finger and you dip it in wine and then you sprinkle it 10 times on your plate as a way to represent the 10 plagues. But there's a rule. You never lick your finger after you dip your finger in the wine for one reason. Because God never enjoys the death of anybody. And neither do you. I think it grieved God's heart that he had to do this. But he did. And that evening, God says, here's what you're going to do. Israel, you are going to take, first thing you're going to do is you're going to take a lamb. You're going to take a lamb. And you're going to slaughter this lamb and you, you are going to feast on this lamb. But here's the rule. Don't break the bones of the lamb. Remember that. Don't break the bones of the lamb. And that night you're going to put blood from the lamb, the Passover lamb, and you're going to put it up on the doorpost of your home. And that night, the angel of the Lord will pass over that house. And so Moses, that evening, all of Israel, they slaughter the Passover. They don't break the bones. They put the, door, the blood on the doorpost. And that evening, the angel of the Lord passes over, and all of Israel now goes out, of, out into the wilderness. They cross through the Red Sea, and they spend one year at a place called Mount Sinai. Now, you will remember what happens in Exodus 19 and 20. Because when they come to a place called Mount Sinai, what happens? Moses goes up on a mountain, and he receives the Ten Commandments. And it turns out that is the first Pentecost. The word Pentecost actually means 50th. And it is uh, the 50 days after the Passover. Passover is the death of the lamb and Pentecost is 50 days later. And it is the Jewish celebration of God giving the law. Moses himself goes up on the mountain, receives the law, brings it down. And yet by the time he comes back down the mountain, Israel is now worshiping a golden calf. And you can only imagine Moses' anger. And as a result of Israel's idolatry on that day, the text tells us that the angel goes through the people of God and as a punishment, 3,000 people die. Now, here's why in the world did we just do a little Bible history? Because folks, the doctor is in. And by the time you read Acts chapter two, all of a sudden you start to see, oh my goodness, 
This new Pentecost is a complete reversal of the first one. Look at the details. In Pentecost 1, in Exodus, it is freedom from Egypt. In Pentecost 2, it is freedom from all evil and darkness. In Pentecost number one, it is 50 days after the death of the Lamb. In Pentecost two, it is 50 days after the death of the Lamb of God, Jesus. In Pentecost number one, you do not break the bones of the Lamb. In Pentecost two, whose bones were not broken on the cross? In Pentecost number one, only Moses goes up on the mountain. In Pentecost two, we all go up the mountain. In Pentecost one, it is the celebration of the giving of the law. In Pentecost two, it is the celebration of the giving of the Holy Spirit. In Pentecost one, it is after the death of the firstborn of Egypt. But in Pentecost 2, it is after the death of God's only son. In Pentecost 1, all of the people act like pagans. In Pentecost 2, all of the pagans start acting like God's people. In Pentecost 1, the people used fire to make their God. In Pentecost 2, God uses fire to make his people. And in Pentecost 1, 3,000 people were killed. In Pentecost 2, 3,000 are saved. It is a complete reversal. The doctor is in. When I became a Christian at 16 years old, um, I, uh, I met Jesus at a very dark point in my life. My parents had just gone through a divorce. I was uh, raised, very on, lonely child. I was an only child. Um, met Jesus, and um, when I was 20 years, 21 years old, I was in college. 20 years old, I was in college. And the whole, the whole story, I was 16 when I met Jesus, and I was 20 when I had my first like, experience with the Holy Spirit. The more and more I've followed Jesus from that point forward, all of the things in my life that I thought were failures and death have become God's glory. See, when you are in Jesus, he reverses everything. It's a little bit like Shakespeare. I hate Shakespeare. But Shakespeare only wrote in two different kinds of genres. He wrote comedies and tragedies. And when you look at the two, there's two differences. A tragedy in Shakespeare always ends with one thing. It always ends with a suicide. But a comedy always ends with a wedding. And when you are in Jesus, your tragedy becomes a comedy. And the genre of your life gets flipped upside down. I don't know about you, but I'm getting into some good news already. How are we doing? How are we doing? Number one, when you encounter the Holy Spirit, he begins reversing all the dark stuff. Number two, 
When you experience the Holy Spirit, you begin to live into a whole new identity. Now, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a whole new identity. Um, there, there's a, the, the Bible actually has a lot to say about uh, identity, but the way the Bible does it is it often does it through the lens of, uh, oddly enough, um, it, it, the Bible talks about identity often through the lens of naming. In the Bible, when you name something, it means you have authority. To name somebody means you have authority. So, so when God comes to the man in, in the garden, the man and the woman, he gives the responsibility of naming the animals. What God is saying is he's saying, I am giving you unique authority in, in the garden region. I'm giving you unique authority. Not to rule over, but to rule for. To rule for God. You don't get to rule over creation, you get to rule under God. To name is very powerful. Uh, when you look, for example, at Genesis 11 and 12, there's these two naming accounts. In Genesis 11, you'll recall, the humanity rebelling against God goes to this place called Babel. And what do they build? This tower! They build this tower to God! And they do it for one reason. To make a name for themselves. And what you see right here is in rebellious humanity, in rebellious humanity, rebellious humanity always seeks to name itself. I create my sense of identity and no one else gets. It's, it's a way of saying, God, we reject the name you've given to us and we're gonna make our own. Rebellious humanity. And what happens immediately in the next chapter? God comes to a guy named Abram Abram, and he says to him, Abram, I'm going to take you to this land. I'm not even going to tell you where we're going. Just come with me to a land I'm going to show you. I'm going to give you kids. I'm going to give you future. I'm going to give you nation. And I will make your name great. What does God do? God gives names. You see, in the Bible, your identity is either going to be self-imposed or received. It's funny, when you read the Gospels, Jesus is always changing people's names. You're not Cephas, you're Peter. Because a God that has authority is a God that names. In this story, I want you to imagine being in the room. Peter is the first person to stand up and preach. Peter is the first person to stand up and preach. And by the way, he preaches out of the most obscure Old Testament passage you could find, Joel 2. Like rabbis for hundreds of years have not had a way of understanding Joel 2. You read the commentaries and like, we don't get this passage at all. The Spirit's coming, women and men will prophesy. We don't get it. And then a fisherman, a fisherman stands up and says, well, let me explain Joel 2 to you guys. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I put you in your place here. Yeah, I know you've been wrestling with this stuff, but I was fishing and this came to me. And I can tell you, Peter didn't do that. Peter didn't get Joel 2 because he had the new Logos Bible software. He, he didn't do it because he watched enough Bible Project videos. He didn't do it because he went to seminary. He didn't do it because X, Y, and Z. There's only one reason. 
No amount, I'm, I am so pro-education, it's ridiculous. I have a PhD, you know what that means? Literally, 26 grades. I can't tell you how pro-education I am. I still owe many of these schools a great deal of money. That's how pro-education I am. But I can tell you, no amount of education compares with your anointing. He has a whole new identity. A fisherman is preaching Joel to. You know, when Jesus, uh, this is not going to be, by the way, the only time in the Bible where you see the Holy Spirit coming down on somebody. It actually turns out that what is happening now with the church is exactly what happened to Jesus. When Jesus, at 30 years old, goes down to the River Jordan, his cousin is there, John the Baptist. By the way, we have four members of Jesus' family, his mother, his cousin, and his two half-brothers, James and Jude, who all have one thing in common. All four of them worship Jesus. If you want to ask me for one really good argument why Jesus was God, that's it. Because I will never worship my cousin. <laughs> I, I have many things to say about my cousins, but worshiping, ascribing them as divine is not one of them. Okay? I, uh, Esau Macaulay at Wheaton University says that's actually one of the greatest arguments for the uh, divinity of Jesus is that the people that played in the sandbox with Jesus worshipped him. He goes to his cousin who baptizes him. And when Jesus comes out of the water, up to this point, Jesus had done, I, I, I'm not being crass when I say this. I am bar, the scholars, I mean, when Jesus came out of the water, he had, up to that point, done nothing. There is no miracle referenced. There is no healing referenced. There is no teaching reference. There is nothing referenced. It was 30 years of obscurity for Jesus. There's actually only one story from his teenage years, and it's not that flattering. He gets lost in the temple for three days. And his parents have to come find him. Now, interestingly enough, that is not going to be the first time in Jesus' life that he's lost for three days. So it's a premonition, but there's, his teenage years were marked by obscurity. Which I, if you were to ask me, you didn't ask me to talk about this, but if I did a whole lecture on social media, my greatest sadness around social media is it robs children of their obscurity. And I'm saying that in a room of people that work for some organizations. <laughs> and I know where I'm at. I'm, I know I'm in California, and I know that this is a tech-savvy church. But I, I think, I just want to say, I think Jesus, 30 years of obscurity, something good happens when we're obscure in our childhood. He was obscure for 30 years. And at 30 years old, he goes to the River Jordan, and he comes up out, and the dove falls on Jesus. And by the way, the text doesn't say it was an actual dove. It says it, was a, it looked like a dove. We don't know. It, it looked like a dove. It wasn't necessarily a dove. I mean, it is interesting. Why a dove? Why not like a beaver? You know, like that just like <laughs> swam into the river and climbed on Jesus' head and was like, anointed. You know, like why a dove? 
there's a lot of things to be said about that. Uh, there was a book written a couple years ago actually by a, a, a scholar in the Roman world who found out that Rome, when Rome had a new Caesar, they would release birds, but they would be eagles. And that eagles represented power and dominance. And that the dove is a sign of power falling, but it is not like Roman power. It's a different kind of power. And the spirit falls on Jesus. And the voice of heaven says, this is my son who I love with whom I'm well pleased. And I just said to you, for 30 years, Jesus was obscure. He has accomplished nothing. And yet, before he accomplishes anything, the father speaks over him. You're my son whom I love with whom I'm well pleased. I gotta tell you, I know too many Christians who think their identity, they think their sense of identity is wrapped up with their accomplishment. That after I get the stuff done, then God will speak that he's pleased with me. And I gotta tell you, if that's what you think, that is a genetically modified gospel. That is fake good news. To believe that you accomplish and then receive your identity is a lie. Jesus receives the Father's love and affirmation before he accomplishes a single thing. And today, you receive the identity and affirmation of the Father, not because you've accomplished it all, but because you're God's beloved. My friends, if that ain't good news for you this morning, I don't know what else to give you. Peter has a whole new identity. And with that, number three, not only does he have a new identity, he has a unique kind of freedom. This guy, I mean, the free, I put, put, put yourself in, in, your, in, in Peter's shoes. You're a fisherman. You're not known as being smart. You're not known as being incredible. And all the more, when you look at Peter's life, what had he done just a few chapters earlier? He denied Jesus three times. How is it possible for the guy who just denied Jesus to be the first guy who preaches him. That's a weird turnaround. <laughs> of all the people you would think who get to get the mic the first time, it's not Peter. I'm not thinking like, well, you just did what you did and you know, you're gonna wait five years. We're gonna put you in some Celebrate Recovery courses and we'll get you kind of worked out and get you some, some counseling and stuff. And then we'll give you the mic. He gets the mic chapters after denying Jesus. There was a philosopher named Albert Camus who famously was an atheist who believed in hell. And Camus believed that hell was when a human being lived their entire life with their least favorite identity hanging over their name. Porn addict. Failed spouse. Infertile unaccomplished. And that hell was living your entire life with your shame hanging over your head. <laughs> I teach a class on preaching. And you know what I find among preachers? Is preachers often have this experience of feeling like I don't feel qualified to preach knowing how broken I am. I remember Tim Keller, Lord rest his soul, God rest his soul, 
before he passed, one of his, my favorite sermons he ever preached was he said this. He said, if you all knew how broken I was, you would all find another church. That's Tim Keller. See, when you're a preacher, you're broken. And for some of you, I bet there's, a, there's been kind of Camus-ish. There has been a psychology of failure hanging over your head that you can't be effective for Jesus because of your struggle. And I want to say, tell that to Peter. If a sinner cannot preach the gospel, who is left? You see, you in the Holy Spirit, friends, you don't just receive the power of God. Whatever hangs over your head is demolished. You are no longer your failure. You are no longer your least favorite quality. I'm gonna even say this. You are no longer defined by your Enneagram number. And I am, so, I love Enneagram, but it weirds me out how we often take our number more seriously than what God says about us. I'm, your number is great, and you're great, but it's just a word, it's not the final word. Jesus speaks the final word. For anybody in the room that works for Enneagram, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> Lastly, can I have five more minutes? Are we good? Oh, good. Oh, good. They haven't turned the lights off again, so. Good to go. So up to this point, the Holy Spirit, you receive a reversal, a new identity, freedom. And last but not least, you receive power. And for the next five minutes, um, I may make you uncomfortable. I already gave you the warning. I asked you when we were looking at the text, did you notice that Luke, when he describes Pentecost, he makes a comment, he's mentioning all these people that were there, the Macedonians, the Phrygians, the Pamphylians, the Romans, and I asked you, did you notice that he said that standing there down below celebrating Pentecost and in the room in this radically diverse city, and by the way, all these people are in Pentecost, are in Jerusalem for Pentecost. Jerusalem would have, at the time that this happened, been the most diverse city in the world. And I think it's worth pointing out, the Holy Spirit falls in the context of a wildly, wildly diverse city. You are a perfect, perfect candidate to receive this power. Welcome to LA. I lived in Portland for 10 years. It is the weirdest city in America. It is so weird. We have more, Portland has more nonprofits than any city in the world and more strip clubs than any city in the world. Put those together. And it, is, it was in the middle of a city like Portland that I saw a number of years ago the Holy Spirit fall. It is in a radically diverse, weird city that the Holy Spirit falls. It mentions that in the city, there were Cretans and Arabs. Now, if, if you read the, the text, 
it's, it's the most important thing there is that Luke actually puts both of those groups right next to each other for one major reason. Here's why. In the first century, Cretans and Arabs hated each other. They were two nations that had been at war time and time again. They hated each other. And Luke, when he's describing the Holy Spirit falling, he doesn't, he doesn't miss a punch. He takes both groups and he puts them right next to each other as a way of saying that when the Holy Spirit falls, even enemies come together in Jesus' name. I know this sounds maybe prophetic, and again, I'm going to the airport as soon as I'm done. But we live in a world where there are churches for Democrats and churches for Republicans. And I want to say in Jesus' name, that is not what God intended. God has created an environment where the most important thing about this group of people is not who we vote for. It is who our deepest allegiance is. And our deepest allegiance is to Jesus Christ. And in the church, it actually is the one place where Cretans and Arabs should actually learn to love one another. They stand side by side. They disagree, and man alive, do they write really mean blog articles against each other. Blogging isn't a thing anymore. I'm sorry. They, in the real world, they may have problems with each other. But by the communion of the Holy Spirit, they become one. That is powerful. It is powerful because when the Spirit falls, when the Spirit falls, the church now has the capacity by its power to do things the world can never do. There's this weird detail in the story. That as the early church was in the upper room, the spirit falls and the, the church can speak. Did you see this? Can speak in all the languages of the people down below. Um, we call this speaking in tongues. And uh, it's one of two forms in the New Testament of speaking in tongues. One is the speaking of tongues for the purpose of mission, being able to speak another language for the purpose of the gospel going forth. And one is called glossolalia, which is uh, praying in the spirit or the mysteries by the spirit that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. What is going on here is the first type. That is to say, the disciples in the upper room speak in the languages of all the people down below so that the gospel would go forth. It's amazing. The first image of the church is as a multilingual church. The capacity to speak in every language. There's this weird thing that happens in Christianity called, I mean, you and I can call it uh, Christianese where we expect the world to come into our context and speak our language. That is the reverse of God's intent. God does not expect the world to be the missionary to have to come to us. We are the missionaries called to go to the world and speak their languages. And at the moment that the church receives the power of the Holy Spirit and the capacity to speak all the tongues of the people down below, something absolutely critical takes place. A number of years ago, there was a book uh, by a guy named Justo Gonzalez. He's a, uh, a Latin American a New Testament scholar. Groundbreaking work. His book on the history of Christianity is second to none. It's absolutely fascinating. He wrote a book on the book of Acts. 
And he, he pointed something out I'd never seen before. This is so cool. There is no indication that as the disciples in the upper room speak the languages of the people down below, there is no indication that they actually understood the languages they were speaking. That is to say that when the gospel now goes forth into the nations, the nations will then take the gospel to the ends of the earth. But the disciples don't get to control it. And so here is, here is the mystery. I want to tell you a story, but here's the mystery. Folks, folks, listen, please hear me. The Holy Spirit will give you power, but not control. I saw this happen once. Years ago, I was pastoring in Portland, and uh, I f- uh, preached this sermon. I don't even remember what the sermon was about. This is usually how it goes. All the best stuff happens when I don't even remember what I say. I preached this sermon, and our church had grown. There were all these people from Portland coming in. This guy comes up to me. I'd never met him. I'd never seen him. And he comes up to me, and he says, he says Are you, you're the pastor. You're the guy speaking. I was like, yeah, yes, that's me. And he says, I'm, I want to, he goes, I want to, I want to ask you to do something. He goes, I want you to pray for me, but I need you to know I'm not a Christian, <laughs> which I love. Great. We, we do that. He goes, I'm not a Christian, but I need you to pray for me. And I said, what do you need to pray for? And he goes, here's the story. He goes, I was at, I was at a party two weeks ago. He tells me I was at a party and somebody threw a glass of chemical on my face and I have lost right eye, my vision in my right eye. And the minute he said that, I could tell his right eye was all cloudy and it was like, I could tell. And I said, wow, so you can't see. And he goes, I can't see. And I said, what's your name? He tells me his name. He's from Cuba. His name is literally Fidel. I said, Fidel, we need to pray. And he goes, yes, I just asked you to do that. (laughs) So I... Usually when you pray for somebody by laying on of hands, by the way, encouragement. When you pray for somebody by laying on of hands, you need to ask for permission. Uh, because what you're about to do is very powerful and we are commanded by Paul to not be hasty in the laying on of hands. So you need to be cautious. I said to him, I said, can I pray for you? Can I lay my hands on you? He goes, yes. And I grab a couple of our elders and we come forward. One of our elders, Rick, comes up. And we begin to pray. Now, I'll tell you, as an academic, sometimes by the, when, when I pray, I pray really safe prayers. Like, I'll pray like this. I'll, I'll, like, I've prayed for a bunch of people to be healed before. And I catch myself, like, praying with, like, footnotes. So I'm like, I'm like, God, I pray that you'd heal the person that's here. And, but if you don't, you're still God. You know, like, because like, <laughs> I, I don't, you know, I don't want them to be let down. You know, I'm like, I'm like, I'm, I'm going to pray for healing, but I don't want you to, like, if it doesn't happen, you, you like hate me or something. So I've, I gotta have a footnote in there. So, so I'm like all academic. Like, that's normally how I pray, is I just pray like, God, would you just heal the person? And, but if you don't, you're still good and we love you. Rick has none, no footnotes. He is a full-on Holy Spirit guy who like is not nuanced. He has no footnotes. So I pray. 
God, would you pray? While I'm praying, I sense, in our prayer, I sense the Lord say, ask him if he wants to follow Jesus. So we're praying, and I said, Fidel, I sense that God is pursuing you. Do you want to be a Christian? And I could tell at this point, he's beginning to cry, and he says, yes. And by the way, the people who had brought him to church that day were a bunch of Christians who are all watching this, who dragged their friend to church. And they're like watching, and I bet they're like, what's going on? We brought this guy to church. Is it gonna work or not? So I'm praying, and, <laughs> and I'm praying, and I say, you know, do you wanna follow Jesus? And Fidel goes, yes, I wanna follow Jesus. He starts to cry, and I pray my prayer. And then, and then pa- Elder Rick, no nuance, no footnotes. He just takes his hand, and he just puts it on his face, And he goes, in Jesus' name, heal Fidel. And he prays. And he finishes the prayer. I'm standing right there. We take our hands off Fidel. And he opens his eyes. And he like blinks like 10 times. And he's like, I can see. And all of a sudden, he just, he just crumbles before me. In the span of 10 minutes, this guy transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light and received his sight back. And I gotta tell you, some of you are thinking like, does that happen all the time? It doesn't. In fact, I've prayed for people and they died within the hour. This rarely happens to me, but man, when it does, you preach it. And I stood and watched a guy receive his sight back. And all of his Christian friends, I turn around and they are like, it worked! (laughs) Finally, we brought somebody and it worked! (laughs) And we stood, I can't even begin to tell you, we stood up together and for an hour just gloried in God. And I remember standing there And I'm like so jazzed because we're church plant. And I'm like, yes, we need volunteers. (laughs) Because when you get healed, baby, you start tithing. You start serving, you start going. And I'm like, yes, finally, this guy is all in. And I'm standing there watching as Fidel and his friends leave. And here's the moral of the story. I never saw him again. And I'm kind of mad about it. I never saw him again. He started serving at a different church. (laughs) And you know what I learned? God really wants to give you power. But he will not give you control. And the worst form of Christianity is the one that rejects the power and only wants control. And I want to say to you, church, today, I'm I'm finishing, I want to say to you, the power of heaven is resident inside of you. Your problem is not that God is not there, it's that you don't believe it. Mm 